For 400 years, golf has been a gentleman's game. A game of tradition, etiquette, and above all, sportsmanship. Until now. Y'all ready for this? Yeah! Meet Happy Gilmore. He was a hockey player. Touch my puck, baby! Don't you ever touch my puck! Who was skating on thin ice. But when his grandma needed his help... Mrs. Gilmore owes the IRS $270,000. We're gonna have to sell the house to someone else. But she's an old lady. I mean, look at her. She's old. He discovered a new talent. Welcome back to Not Your Weekly Sports Pod. We've got my buddy, my boy, my personal lawyer responsible for all my affairs, my conciliary, Kale Hayes, joining me on a Not Not Your Weekly Sports Pod episode. My bro, what's good with you, Kale? I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing, you jackass? <laughs> bro, I'm doing a lot better now that you put me on one of my new favorite comedy movies from the 90s happy gilmore which i'm more than happy to dive into today with you we're going rewatchable style on this adam sandler classic and bro before like we even discussed what movie we were going to do when you told when you brought this up as a potential i couldn't believe i hadn't seen it man I, like all of the adam sandler classics i visited at some point and for this, you know, his second big movie to not be on my cue history is absolutely unacceptable. So 61% on Rotten Tomatoes. It wasn't like none of his movies are ever critical masterpieces. He's never been an Oscar nominee for those 90s comedies, but people love it. You know, for a $12 million budget, it made $41 million worldwide, pretty well at the box office. But more importantly... I think this movie was a generational comedy for a lot of people, bro. Just like what you just pointed out, quotable to the max, references all around in pop culture. And, you know, all sorts of stuff in terms of movies that we'll talk about later on down the line that we think this has influence in. So... Let's go into this, man. What does this movie mean to you, Kill? Like, when did you first watch it? What's your relationship to it? How does Adam Sandler steal you away in these otherwise, what most people would consider like childish like comedies? I mean, for me, with how much I've gotten into golf, like you, you can't not play a round of golf and not quote Happy Gilmore somewhere, somehow. There is always some shot, some action that someone's doing that you're going to throw in a Happy Gilmore quote. I, I mean, it's it's the quintessential golf film. Uh, it, you look around, everybody, you'll see somebody on a golf course trying to do a Happy Gilmore swing. You'll see somebody in a par three get a shot in and then turn around and say, somebody's closer. Like it, It's just, it, it makes everything better when you can quote Happy Gilmore. Yeah, and I was surprised to learn it's such a <laughs> it's such a big part of the of the golf community, like the PGA community. You're not out there unless you've seen this movie and you can reference it in some way. Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, you're having you go to the PGA tour on their YouTube or you go to the European tour on their YouTube every year, every six months, they'll ha they'll have a happy Gilmore contest. It's just it's become part of golf. Like you can't not golf and 
not know Happy Gilmore. Yeah, I think it's almost a self-acknowledgement in the golf community of, you know, just how snob, just how snobby they can be, right? Because the whole behind the theme of this movie, this is a classic snobs versus slobs setup, right? You know, classic comedies like Animal House did this, the Marx Bros, Laurel and Hardy, Charlie Chaplin to some extent. It, I think there's a human tendency that people love seeing rich people appalled by like the lowest roots of society and goofballs. And that's really what, in all honesty, golf is. I mean, golf for the longest time, it's gotten a little bit better today, but for the longest time, it has been nothing but a high society sport. Like you, you think about, it used to be you had to wear, you know, the pants, the hat, the plus fours come out. You'd have to be in slacks. You couldn't play shorts. And I mean, just recently, some of the, the really high end clubs have started allowing their members to actually wear shorts to play golf. And you see Happy come out there in his flannel shirt and his jeans or his dickies and just stick it to him. And it's like, it, it, it's the best thing about it. It's like golf is for everybody. You don't have to be this rich tightwad asshole to be able to play the sport. Anybody can, and anybody can be good at it. There's no way they would let someone dress like that onto the, like a pro tour in today's society, would they? Oh, fuck no. <laughs> so with all that said, you still need a little money in your back pocket to be able to put on one of those nice outfits from the, you know, the top tier section of your Macy's outlet. Yeah. Even if you, uh, happy, would probably be going back and getting what he could find in the Sears catalog. Yeah. I mean, I don't know the Bru the Bruins classic Jersey did look good on him. And he did rock it. I don't know if you could get away with that golfing in the outdoor slavery plantation fields of Houston, Texas, but still it was a classic look for him in the, in the movie and the setting that he had. I mean, and it actually has kind of changed a little bit of what you're looking at on golf tours. I mean, uh, now uh, golf clothing companies are actually starting to sell golf hoodies. Guy bought a golf hoodie and I wear one up up here um, I've had some people ask about it and I'm like, go look at Adidas's website. They sell it as a golf hoodie. Like, uh, someone on the European tour wore it and there was a huge fuss about, Oh my God, he wore a hoodie and he won the tournament. They wore hoodies in the Ryder cup recently. People were throwing shit fits and it's like, who the fuck cares? Yeah. It's, it's good to see them evolving and, you know, bringing more people into the sport by allowing hoodies. It's like Bill Burr said, the greatest contribution the sport of golf ever gave humanity is just these fat old white dudes who didn't want to be uncomfortable out on these fields and just invented the most comfortable clothes in the history of men in golf shirts, golf polos, the golf shorts that Under Armour and Nike sell at Academy. Uh, and now we have golf hoodies. So what a beautiful thing. What a beautiful contribution to society. We're trying, man. We're trying. All right. So now that we got the comfortable golf attire for fat white men out of the way, uh, let's talk about what's unique about this. You know, we talked about how, the root of all these comedies are the the snobs versus slops setup. But I think what Sandler does that I noticed 
like throughout multiple points in this movie, and I think very intentionally so he does this on the big screen, is his rage. You know what I'm talking about? Like he goes from sounding like a weird, hurt-sounding baby to just explosions of anger. That's what golf will do to you. (laughs) You'll be perfectly fine from one shot, and the next one you'll hit it off the hosel and it goes directly right. You're throwing clubs. You're cussing. It's it's golf. Like it's it's golf in a nutshell. I, I imagine a lot of the Pecan Grove kids that we grew up with in school, the the kids from the white rich community, sat through a lot of quiet dinners with their fathers, thinking about you know a chip shot that they didn't angle correctly or a close shot on the green that they missed, and you know it. it it leads to a lot of unexpressed rage in their lives. And Adam Sandler expressed that rage beautifully. Just any time he just went straight to violence, whether it's knocking out the golf pros that were criticizing him on his first, uh, you know, outing, whether it's the hockey tryouts and him just going ham on the coach and on the team. He does this in all his movies, man. We're going to go down like his greatest run in his prime, but I think it's at the base of what makes him great. And I don't know if there's anyone in comedy in, you know, Hollywood that's able to emulate that style of rage quite like what Adam Sandler does. I don't think that there is because it's, it's a hilarious rage. He's always able in his rage to make you laugh. It's, it's not like a rage that you'd see in a, a thrash, uh, a thriller horror movie or a slasher it's just it's this kind of comedic because it's so outlandish that you actually laugh at it yeah and i feel like now he just kind of plays the straight man to other comedians you know he had like his mid-career basically 06 to the late 2010s he was just a little Wayne of comedy. He just released innumerable titles, put out as much as he could, made a lot of bad rom-coms, had like that little phase where he was pairing up with Jennifer Aniston for a whole bunch of movies. Um, and then he kind of reinvented himself with the A24 movie Uncut Gems where he absolutely killed it and I think should have gotten an Oscar nod for that role. But his prime, dude, 95 to 2000, maybe 2002. If we want to give this like a seven year, like a James Harden kind of a run, I'm going to run through this list. And and I really don't know if there's any other comedy actor who's had this stretch of generational movies that are so important to the culture. 95, he drops Billy Madison. 96, Happy Gilmore. 98, he has a twofer where he drops the legendary tale of Bobby Boucher in The Waterboy and The Wedding Singer. 99, he does Big Daddy, 2000, Little Nicky. And then if we want to throw O2, I think O2 should be thrown in because Mr. Deeds is one of the best representation of that rage, along with the animated Eight Crazy Nights. Dude, that prime yeah. is... That's, a pretty impressive resume for a comedy actor in a time where comedies don't really stuff the box office or become big time norms in, in the entire culture. Like a lot of those Sandler movies are. Well, and he was also able to do it 
on minuscule budgets and all of his movies are they're timeless. I know that's kind of a really weird way to describe a Sandler movie, but they're, they're timeless. We're still talking about them today. We're still quoting these movies. We still, just like with happy Gilmore, if we see it pops up on Netflix, we immediately go to it and watch it. Like you just can't not watch movies from that time frame. I think in, in today's, you know, studio driven age where a movie success, I think, is defined by how much money it makes in the box office and, you know, how much it makes relative to its own budget as well. You know, $41 million worldwide is not an impressive make for a movie, but this movie is so much more than $41 million. I think it's one of those movies where when you talk about the rewatch, the inspiration for the rewatchables, is one of those movies that's better now than it was when it came out. One of the other movies that we've done on this podcast, Pulp Fiction, I think fits that category beautifully as well. And Happy Gilmore Today, I think, is a more popular movie than it was at the peak of its box office returns. Agreed. It definitely fits in those categories of where you've got quite a few movies that were, were critically mediocre or somewhat panned when they came out and then over time, because they're like a movie has to fit into this box. And then as we've kind of grown as a society, we realize we, it doesn't have to be in the box. You've got to take a step back and look at what the movie was trying to do and then base it off of that. And it just kind of, it keeps getting better with time. And you're referencing that it only made low forties in the box office, but that doesn't account for how much it still does in the way of rental revenues. And then all the quotes or copyrights from it that they have to license out and then still all the licensing that you use for any type of happy Gilmore clothing. Like it, it, it's just one of those that keeps getting better. Yeah. The only, the, I guess, you know, not to jump ahead into our categories, but we were having a hard time talking about it. What's aged the worst about this movie. And I guess what's aged the worst is just subway subway fucked up, bro. You had one of the greatest young comedy actors, comedians. You know, he killed it on Saturday Night Live as the shy, awkward dude in the little stints he had. You went, You had the first pick of the NBA draft. You got Durant and Odin on the board, and you took Odin. You went with the pedophile over Adam Sandler. So what's age the worst? Subway. Agree. It, they, it was Adam Sandler led it for a little bit. And for some reason they went with Jared and you want to talk about a backfire. I, I mean, I, I can't think of anything in the, in the way of regards to, to company sponsorships or spokesmen having those type of allegations. I mean, can you, well, not even allegations anymore. He was convicted. So yeah, I mean, I, I I can't think of anybody. He, there's so many jokes that I want to make that I can't because I just don't want them to exist on recorded material out there that'll one day be used against me. So I'm going to refrain from, from making any Jared jokes on the podcast. But yeah, dude, you fucked up. And sure, he lost a lot of weight, but uh, he doled out a lot of emotional weight to many children in the world. 
Dude, Subway still could have been riding the Happy Gilmore wave with with Sandler just smoking Subways into people's mouths. Yeah. Yeah, well, and now it is what it is. So let's go into the categories, bro. We're going to get into all the ones we usually do, starting with the most rewatchable scene of this movie. This is basically, you know, the way I described it to you, Kale, was if you're at a pregame, and this scene comes on, you're stopping whatever you're doing, whether it's like a beer pong game, whether it's taking shots, whether you're having a conversation with someone, everyone gathers around the couch to finish watching the scene that comes on. And we have quite a few here. I'm going to start with the first one that I've got early on in the movie. And it's right after, you know, Adam Sandler lays out a bunch of exposition about what's going on in the movie and it jumps to the tryouts where he's trying out and you just see who he is. This vibes, aggressive, loud, young, passionate dude. And I, I'd love, I love the whole <laughs> presentation of him in the setting of this dude who just keeps trying out, who has a rocket shot, but really nothing else and lays the ground for what he eventually becomes. What do you remember about this scene and rewatching it? Anything stand out to you? I mean, the, the biggest thing is the irony of his accuracy I, I mean, I've never played hockey, but I can imagine it's probably easier to be more accurate with a hockey puck than it is a golf ball. He can't hit a hockey puck where he intends for any measure. Like, it is not going to go remotely straight. Yet he can get up on a golf tee and get a fucking hole-in-one on a par four. <laughs> I mean, the, the kind of accuracy, it makes no sense. But like the scene itself, it's the fact of the uh, the the two coaches not being phased with probably a two hundred mile an hour hockey puck shattering the glass, and also the glass's ability to stop the puck and not kill either of them. Yeah, that should have been a death shot. Like that should have been what what you essentially saw on screen was Adam Sandler attempting to assassinate the coaches for passing him up all prior years. And I think that gets swept under the rug for this to be a more lighthearted comedy. But at the root of it, you know, Adam Sandler presents himself as an assassin. And I don't think there's any other way you can explain what we saw. Agreed. Agreed. It, it definitely seemed like there was a little, a uh, little black magic in, uh, in stopping that puck somewhere. <laughs> it's funny in that scene too, the player who gets picked over him. It's one of the last guys is Vince LeCavalier. He ends up becoming a fucking champ in 04 with the Tampa Bay Lightning. Then he wins the Maurice Rocket Richard Trophy for leading the league and scoring in 07. This movie is in 96. So precocious of Sandler to be in the hockey scene enough to pick this guy. I don't know if you like read about this in any of your internet research on this or if you knew about this before, but you know the character is kind of like a reversal of a real-life person that adam sandler knows no i i didn't like yeah, so, i'm doing all this off of watching the movie and then just kind of what i know not not really a lot of background so i didn't know that it had a future nhl star and he was basing this off of somebody he knew yeah it's basically this guy he played hockey with when he was younger ended up becoming a pro hockey player in in like uh, the uk i think london or something uh, but the dude could always outdrive him, always could hit like way further on a golf course. And so he kind of bases the character off of him, off his childhood friend. But in any case, 
that, that's more concerning from the aspect of you wonder if any of his other characters are based off real friends. Like if Billy Madison is based off a real life human being, we should be very concerned. We should be scared of the people that Adam Sandler is in contact with. Agreed. Agreed. And uh, yeah, uh, that that's definitely concerning. <laughs> so the next scene we've got, if we're going in order here, you've got the Chubbs all in the hip scene. Chubbs all in the hips. That's just such a, such a great scene because he's doing it on the green and putting has nothing to do with your hips at all. Your hip stays stationary the whole time. It makes no sense, but just watching Adam Sandler grind on Carl Weathers was just classic. Does Chubbs have like a wife or a love interest at all in the movie? Is there any, is there anything that they're trying to like point towards the audience there? I don't know. Cause that's one of the things that I really wish that they would have done in the movie is develop Chubbs a little bit more. He's, he's kind of here, there sporadic kind of, used as uh, a Bagger Vance type deal, uh, granted, although comedically, but they don't really develop Chubbs, kind of bring him into play, get a little more of the backstory other than the alligator. So I don't know. Yeah, I mean, he, he just looks like he sticks his hand in wherever he wants. You know, he invades Adam Sandler's airspace a lot with his hand, and his hand's always getting chipped away and, Looks like there's all sorts of stuff on there. So just an interesting thing to point out, all in the hips included. Um, Carl Weathers, man, what a legend. Apollo Creed, we recognize him as a trainer of sorts from prior experience, but bringing the comedic element into it, he killed it, dude. He was one of the better parts of the movie for me too. Yeah. And then you've also got uh, the, not the, the caddy that he sticks with, but the original caddy. Uh, it's, that's another classic scene. Or where he's just um, beating his ass up. Yeah, when he comes and takes the bag and he just trucks <laughs> the kid. And um, then he uh, <laughs> gets up and he's like, Mr. Gilmore, I'm your caddy. And it, it, what makes it even funnier is there's a guy on tour, Will Zalatoris, uh, who looks exactly like uh, Jared Von Snellenberg. And so he actually has imprinted on the back of his Vokey wedges. Uh, Mr. Gilmore, I'm your caddy. That's beautiful. I love any scene of Sandler celebrating with that kid in the background. Like he, where he, I think he hits either the hole in one or he makes like a birdie or something. I don't know. And he just takes the kid and starts slamming him into the ground and like wringing him like a doll, basically. Love anything, including the two of them. That was a good run. And what's even more ironic is how many people on the golf course for the Waterbury Open, how many people on the golf course are just in normal clothes? And this is, I guess that's what he's trying to use is the irony is, you know, you if you were something like this was going to be a Monday qualifier, Every you may be able to wear shorts as a player, but you are still dressed to the nines. Everyone has to act respectfully, and he just kind of makes a mockery of it. Yeah, I love it. I, I love all it. Like you know, going a little bit further ahead, the PR girl—I forget her name, Julie. 
when she's talking to the head of the league, Doug, about basically why she should keep happy in the in the tournament in the tour and not you know off him because of all his antics and in the background you hear all the bleeps all the curse words they're bleeping out bleep you bleep this you bleep and bleep 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 just a beautiful mockery of the sport i love it and if we had something like that if we had like a rory mcelroy of the golf community i think i would be more tuned in to what's happening in golf Agreed. And I think it's kind of getting there. It's the sport for the longest time. You weren't really allowed to have or show any emotion. Tiger Woods was really the first one to show emotion. And people are like, oh, my God, what's he doing on the course? He's, he's you know, cheering. He's jumping up and down. He's fist pumping. This is not what golf is about. Golf is not about this. It's about being calm and stoic and to just saying hit the fuck it button and dude. You do something good, you celebrate. You don't have to be this, you know, 80-year-old tightwad asshole. You can let loose every now and then. Yeah, the golf community did do that to Tiger. Kind of sounds like a lot of the white community doing certain things to Obama as well. You know, like when Obama wore the tan suit, they're like, oh, my God, president having swagger. This is despicable. So a lot of that mixed in, even in the in the golf community. Oh, absolutely. I mean, for the, the longest time, I, I, I don't know how much you know about golf, but for the longest time down in the South, uh, golf clubs did not allow African-Americans to participate in golf. Um, and then Augusta, where they played the Masters, arguably the most prestigious tournament in all of golf, um, they didn't allow black members until the nineties and they allowed their first black woman in mid 2010s as Condoleezza Rice. And there was a huge uproar about it too, amongst the members. Wow. I think that elevates Condoleezza Rice's rankings and Dave Chappelle's race draft. I think it does. So that's a nice fact for the listeners of Not Your Weekly Sports Pod. I don't think you get that kind of stuff anywhere else. Kale, talk to me about the uh, the tell the ball to go home scene. Uh, it's it's every golfer's worst nightmare. You get up, you think that you have the putt, and you hit the putt, and it ends up just short. And it's, it's more than likely the putt for you to have your your career best round or you had a couple skins on the line that you were going to take home a couple hundred bucks and it comes up just short just because that ball doesn't want to go to its fucking home. I love the way. I mean, you go ahead. I'm sorry. It, it's just classic because it's, that's how everyone feels. It's like, this is your home. Go home. What the fuck are you doing? <laughs> He, the actor who uh, told him this too, God, what's his name? He, he's one of those like, oh, I, I know you. I've seen you before kind of actors. I think his name's uh, Kevin Nealon. He did such a good job of setting it up. He's just a weird, awkward guy from the get-go. Um, <laughs> and he presents it so just strangely and cringeworthily. So 
we've seen him before, right? I feel like he's been in other Adam Sandler movies before. I know Sandler loves to reuse a lot of his guys in his movies. I want to say he's been in other Sandler movies, and I think he was in Grandma's Boy. Was Grandma's Boy a Sandler movie? No, but he kind of always does those, like, Zen stoner guy, and he's he's typecast for that. Yeah, I mean, he was in Anger Management. He was in Eight Crazy Nights. Um, Little Nicky, he was the gatekeeper. So he's he's another one of, like, Sandler's crew. You know, I like to call Adam Sandler the modern Judd or the old school Judd Apatow, where he just has a group of guys. They just write the comedy. They make fucking jokes. And they have a base template that they just inject these jokes into and create scenes out of them. There's a general story in there somewhere. There's a theme, an emotional lesson to be had, but the whole movie is just their improv comedy being put together. Yeah. And that's kind of what makes it special is every, everybody's able to, uh, they know how the others are going to react. They know how they're going to play so they can just, they really can vibe off of each other and it doesn't have kind of any awkwardness, like any tension between the cast members that you may feel like you see on some movies where you've got some beef between some of the, some of the actors, like whenever they, they uh, put Chris Rock and Will Smith together. Um, But he does a good job. Like everything just flows pretty well in his movie and especially in happy Gilmore. Yeah. It will in his old movies, at least. Yeah. it, it felt like he cared, you know, it felt like he was invested in the character and what he wanted out of the story back before maybe like the 04 or five days. And in all honesty, you kind of just feel like you're watching Sandler's life because this is kind of how I imagine that he actually lives. Yeah. They said when he was, uh, when he was planning on this movie and he was meeting with the producers, he would just tell them, yo, let's go hoop. And they would go on the basketball court and sweat it out. And then while they're like waiting for the next game or they're in the sauna afterwards, they would talk about the movie and ideas for it. So I think he's absolutely as laid back a dude with a little bit of rage that he's able to express in this art medium that he portrays in these movies. Oh yeah. And uh, I want to correct it. I was, I was wrong. It wasn't the putting green. It was the, the tee box right after he assaults his caddy. But uh, yeah, your, your hips don't work like that in golf. You don't slide. You rotate. <laughs> Unless you're grinding on Carl Weathers. So it's a role fewer privileged to have said, to have done. I, I'd say that that's something. Yeah, that's definitely a trophy he's got in his trophy case. Yeah, he looks up on the like at the Mount Rushmore of romances that he had. The ones with Drew Barrymore in Fifty First Dates has got to be up there. Um, you know, I can't think of anything else that would even be comparable to what he had with Carl Weathers in that moment. So, yeah, I, I, I don't think right. that there is, and not even the way that. Uh, he touched Kevin James. It just didn't have the same oomph that it did with Carl. God, I forgot about that. What was that movie called? Uh, I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry. Classic, classic. Uh, no way you could get away with making a movie like that today. Or a lot of Sandler's movies, for that matter, could you get away with making today, but beautiful one nonetheless. Last so, scene here, bro. 
Well, one of our last. We got one more after this. The price is right, Uncle Bob. Walk price me through wrong, this scene, bitch. bro. <laughs> Walk me through this classic scene. I think this is probably the most recognizable scene in the movie if you talk to anyone who's seen this movie before. It is definitely the most most recognizable scene, and it's just so many things put together. You've got Bob Barker, who was at, actually, when he was alive, he was a huge golf fanatic. He loved golf. And Shooter, Shooter paying the guy to come out to get under happy skin. It, it just, there's so many quotable things between the guy yelling happy, you jackass, every time, which, you know, that's the perfect way to get under somebody's skin if they're going to tee off. I can tell you I've won a couple skins doing that before. Um, and then just getting to where he and Bob just get into it, it's, it's just one of the best comedic scenes of all time. There's nothing better than watching Adam Sandler and Bob Barker fight each other. Then Bob come back up from the dead. The price is wrong, bitch. Yeah. Initially he didn't want to do the scene, but he, you know, after he read and saw that he was going to win so decisively, he told them basically one, I need a guarantee that I win the fight and two, you guys have to let me do my own stunts. And he trained karate with Chuck Norris back in the day. So it was good to see old Bob out there throwing hands while he was still young and limber. He's still alive, dude. 98 years young, still kicking it. Oh, Barker's still alive? Yeah. Holy shit, there still is hope for humanity. <laughs> yeah, he's alive and well. Uh, he'll be... Let's see. He'll be 99 in December. He's had a lot of falls. Right. So you better watch out for another hip fracture that'll end up in the hospital and he'll get COVID from some hospital staff and then things will get bad. Like Chris Paul said, shit got bad real quick. Oh man, that's another road. We'll have to go down another day. Indeed. indeed. Kind of like a kind of like shooter blowing that lead. Yeah, we don't need to talk about that. Um, you know, that scene, bro, that was actually the first ever MTV movie award for a best fight. And it won the best fight award. Can you name just one other best fight winner throughout the years between 1996 and today? I, there's no way you'll guess the one that won last year, but just try to give me one. Best fight scenes. Um, got to pick just any of the fight scenes with, uh, from fight club. No, no fight clubs. Wow. Damn. <laughs> I don't know. Some of the classics is, uh, 2013, the Avengers against Loki. 2016 really? Deadpool, Ryan Reynolds facing off against the final enemy. Going way, way back, Gerard Butler versus the enemy Robert Maylett in 300. Kill Bill 1 and 2, Irma Thurman fucking shit up. You know who won it last year? It was actually Courtney um, Kardashian versus Kim Kardashian and Keeping Up with the Kardashians was the 2021 winner. So if we're gauging the culture and where Hollywood is going based on this award, we're headed for real dark times here. 
Uh, yeah, we're, we're going down the, the peak and there's there's no end to the valley. Yeah. Disappointed to say, but we got one more scene, bro. Walk me through Larson, our introduction to this beast, to this OG Bond villain turned ally and what he means to this movie. Oh, man. It, it, it's kind of the whole, like... It's another version of comedic relief, but the way that he plays it of just being his boss, which Happy is actually a surprisingly good sharpshooter with the nail gun, and then putting a nail into Larson's head after it goes through one of the beer cans, which I still have the question of they were able to remove the hard hat, but not the nail. But it just... So how... How big is the actor? I want to say he's like seven two, just this seven two, absolute yeah. mammoth human being. And if we're happy to think that he hated him, come out, he's actually a huge fan of of Happy. And then Shooter, <laughs> they've got two really great scenes with Larson. So you've got whenever he's. Uh, whenever he comes over and he's got to hit the ball off of the shoe and he turns around, which it ended up actually being a pretty popular meme for a while. Right. Happy Gilmore accomplished this feat no more than an hour ago. Yeah. So one of the more quotable quotes from the movie. Uh, And then also after he (laughs) hits the ball and then pisses Larson off, He's turning around and saying, you can count on me waiting for you in the parking lot. And just everybody's like, oh, yeah, this go- this guy's going to get fucking killed. <laughs> Basically, he has fucking Frankenstein coming after and him. And all, all the best while wearing a shirt that says, I, guns don't kill people, I kill people. <laughs> uh. What a great, what a great uh, comeback from the American people against the richest snobs of our society. Thank you, Mr. Larson. Yeah, I mean, and this is the beauty of Sandler, bringing in guys who are forgotten about in Hollywood but somehow recognizable. This is a guy who is the baddie in uh, the 1977 Bond film, The Spy Who, I don't remember the full name of it, The Spy Who Loved Me. It was The Spy Who Loved Me and then also Moonraker. Yeah, he becomes the good guy. They loved him so much in the first one that he becomes the good guy, an ally in the second one. So awesome little appearance. Maybe a six-man nomination for him in the works here. Uh, and that's it for most rewatchable scenes, bro. If we had to pick one of them as a grand winner of all these, I think we got to go with The Price is Right, Bob Barker. It's fight. definitely Bob Barker. And that's the thing is it sucks narrowing all these down because there's so many good ones like – Ben Stiller coming in and just saying, <laughs> you can trouble me for a warm glass of shut the hell up. It just <laughs> the whole <laughs> nursing home, holy shit. Like it does get bad in there. Or happy destroying the clown. Or him turning around and a shooter turning around saying, I eat pieces of shit for breakfast. Happy, you eat pieces of shit? 
I think all in all, like all that is what aged the best. All those little like <laughs> all those little scenes and one liners. You eat pieces of shit. The the fucking pause from Christopher McDonald. No. And walks away. I didn't you know, I I'm a huge fan of old Kanye West, the uh, graduation college dropout, late registration. Throw it all at me. I'm, I'm I'll eat it, I'll consume it again. Um you eat pieces of shit for breakfast? What's the basis? I know that had to come from this movie. There had to be some inspiration no, it, from it. It, it. To my knowledge, this is really where it came from. And then it just kind of took off from there. But yeah, I mean, it's it's one of the most quotable quotes. Whether it's in sports or whether just in society with the Kanye, it's just... So many great quotes came from this movie. Like you just, you can't, I would challenge somebody to watch this movie that hasn't ever seen it before and not hear a quote that they're like, oh, so that's where it comes from. Yeah. I mean, for it to have survived this many years too, it's been like 25, 26 years and I feel like it's just grown stronger in the force in that manner. Kel, do you have anything, speaking of all these years, do you have anything else that aged the best? Uh, it's got to be happy swing. Uh, I mean, just at every golf tournament that I've been to, any scramble, there is always a challenge of who can do the best happy Gilmore. Like, it, it's, it's endearing. Everybody tries. It's one of the first things if you're not playing a competitive round. It's the first thing when you get to the longest hole on the course. All right, let's get the happy Gilmore's going so you can do it the best. Who's is anyone like come close to mastering it? No. No, nobody can do it like Happy. I mean, the guy hit a hit a hole in one on a four hundred yard par four. <laughs> Does that happen? Has anyone ever done that in golf? Uh, professional golf I think that you have had two hole-in-ones on par fours but they were all like 300 yard par fours what's the difficulty of a par four like what's unique about a par four um, are you are you talking about like what he did yeah uh, so it's it's almost impossible I think there's one guy on the planet who could reach a 400 yard par four and for, to not only be able to to reach it, which is obscene. I mean, your longest drivers in golf, like you're considered the long longest hitters, are like three thirty. And so to get an extra seventy yards in the air, because the three thirty is considered also with roll in the air, and not only hit the right spot on the green for it to roll up and in. I, I mean, it's. It's impossible. It's it's like the uh, it's like the Trailblazers hitting on a on the right draft pick. Wow, that hurts. I mean, you got Damian Lillard, but other than that, yeah, it's been a it's been a long thread of failure and pain. Yeah, I know. I'm gonna I'm gonna get some backlash for that comment up here. Well, hey, you know, you have a lot of a lot of fellow brethren here in Houston, Texas, who will take you in the warm embrace of our six, seven year rebuild that hopefully will come to fruition if Jalen Green turns into what he looks like. But enough about the Rockets, bro. What's aged worst? 
about the movie. Do you have anything? Because I've got one very interesting tidbit. Aged worst. Um, I don't know. I guess. I guess probably the. Uh, I probably have to say the beginning scene with he and his girlfriend and just kind of the rage back and forth, where you can probably assume that there may have been some uh, domestic violence issues. Um, but that's that's probably what I would say is age the worst is to to do something like that in this day and age. It, I don't know too many people that would probably find that situation too funny. Yeah. And then the, you know, having a little kid hear your orgasmic licking of the bell, you're going to jail for a long time if anyone sees a young kid exposed to you doing that. So, yeah. So I guess for what age the worst for me, I'm going to take an interesting angle here. You know, Nabil and I always talk about what's so interesting is trying to take standards that we had in olden times and think about how we would react to them today. One example of that being the notebook and how awkward and kind of a creeper Noah was in chasing down the character that uh, Rachel McAdams was portraying. Bro, same thing here. I mean, can you imagine anything more terrifying for a woman than the date that Happy took Virginia on to the golf rink or not the, the hockey rink? You take a woman to a secluded place where the only other person is this old, basically janitor who knows you personally, turns the lights off. You're in a secluded area. There's nobody else. And you're basically offered an ultimatum with sexual demands tied to the back of them. This would be a terrifying place to be. This would be a, quite a hinge or bumble or tender story to tell your friends. You know, I never thought of it that way, but that's a pretty interesting perspective. Like I, <laughs> I can see that. It's definitely not what was intended. And, you know, it's a beautiful, ultimately endearing take on their relationship. But no, but it, man. it's true. That's just uh, how, how far, like I, I understand the point of cancel culture, but how far it can get taken is something like that, that had absolutely no intention of that being misconstrued as that, uh, as Kendrick said so well on uh, Mr. Morale, which by the way, one of the best rap albums of all time. Wow. Okay. You got me. I'll check it out. Speaking of this uh, date situation, Kel, do you know what the Bechdel test is? I do a little bit, and that's only because I randomly looked it up after you messaged it to me. So it's essentially a, a litmus test for a lot of people on a movie's ties to a feminism where it has to have two named female characters interacting with you. They both have to be named. They both have to be female characters. And there has to be a scene where they interact with each other and talk about something other than a man. Does this happen in this movie? Uh, 
I don't know that it does. I'm trying to think if Virginia and Granny talk about happy, uh, something other than happy, and I, I don't, don't think, think they, they do. do. No, I don't think they do. This movie fails the Bechtel test. This is a broy movie. But it's it may be, but it doesn't matter whether you're a male or female golfer. You're still going to watch it and have an absolute <laughs> blast. Yeah, one hundred percent. I agree, bro. Is there and if you what, don't laugh, if you don't laugh at us, you can just go fucking shove it. Yeah, <laughs> you can have a nice glass of shut the hell up. Exactly. Take that warm milk. Shut the hell up. So, six man, while we're on that topic, bro, I got to give it to Ben Stiller playing the evil Warden Hal. You know, he's never credited in this movie. He's never called by his name by any other character. It's just a badge that he has on. Just the quotes from him, dude. They're all time. You know, oh, your fingers hurt? Well, now your back's going to hurt because you just pulled landscaping duty. (laughs) (laughs) Now you're going to go to sleep or I will put you to sleep. See the name tag? You're in my world now, Grandma. And then just all the ones when she's on the she's trying to talk to Happy in the room, she looks out the window and he's just staring right back at her. <laughs> Making the finger across the throat notion. He, this is uh-huh. legendary. He's basically portraying what hospital administrators do to healthcare workers when they're being talked to by, you know, outside agencies. Uh, but, so um, who's your how? Yeah, um, I feel like this is just looking at him, the mustache that he's rocking, his swagger. This has got to be a tryout for his character in Dodgeball years later, right? Yeah, it's it's like he's a yeah. I'd say it's him with Dodgeball. It's he is totally yeah. And what he's character? Totally white Goodman. <laughs> without the perfectly feathered hair without the perfectly feathered hair you know he had the stash down but the hair was took a de- another decade to come into fruition i think i'm gonna watch that movie tonight i do this that's that's another one we're gonna have to do a rewatchables on 100 uh who's your sixth man here man uh man i i i'm torn it's either between uh the original caddy or it's Mr. Larson. Like I, I, both of them just have such memorable appearances. Uh, I think I'm going to have to go with Mr. Larson. Mr. Larson is legendary. I, I mean, he truly is. And I, I gotta say, I, I gotta give full props to shooter. That is, that was one hell of a shot off a shoe. Like that, and to get it, like, not only back in the fairway, but on the green, that was – he that, that may have been shot of the year. You know, some players have the gene. They have the clutch gene, the X factor, as a lot of sports casters like to the term. Shooter McGavin, for all his downfalls, for all his faults, you know, eventually getting murdered at the end of the movie by Mr. Larson, had the gene. He was the guy you could rely on in the fourth quarter. You got money on the line for a big shot. He's your guy. Big shot, Bob. But unfortunately, you know, when you go up against Hall of Fame talent like Happy Gilmore, the end result is going to be you get murdered by a seven foot two James Bond villain. So don't step up. 
I mean, that's that's what happens when you don't take your your putting practice seriously and go to the uh, go to your local putt putt course. Yep, that's it. You know, a question Nabil and I always ask on this episode is whether or not you can fit a rock in it. So Dwayne the Rock Johnson, I had if I could fit him anywhere in this movie, I think it would be in Mr. Larson's role. Like, you know, absolutely. He he rock bottoms shooter at the very end as he's running away. He just takes his sleeve off, bounces around the green off like the fucking the little flag he bounces off the crowd and then rock bottoms shooter McGavin into submission. Yeah. There's going to be a shooter's going to be smelling a lot of what the rock is cooking. Yeah. It doesn't matter what shooter McGavin thinks. So I think that would have been beautiful. I mean, he, he did think that Grizzly Adams didn't have a beard. Yeah, this is true. Shooter had a lot of faults here. Um, I'm really glad with the actor they chose for him. I think he was perfect as the dick Christopher McDonald. He like rejected the role a couple of times. The studio really wanted Kevin Costner, but he went with another golf movie, Tin Can or Tin Cup or something. I don't remember. Tin Cup. Yeah. And Bruce Campbell, legendary evil dead actor who paired up with Sam Raimi on several occasions was also up for the role. Yeah. Uh, Bruce Campbell would have been good. Yeah, I I loved what he did, especially as Ash, which I don't know if you've ever seen Ash versus Evil Dead. No. Uh, the show they made for a little bit. Dude, you got to watch it. It is fantastic. Is uh, is Sam Raimi attached to it in any way? He, I think he actually is. It, it's a great – If how many Evil Deads have you seen? All three. The two and then the um, Army of Darkness. It's it's a lot like two. Okay. Just as it's got some got some horror quotation marks around it and just a lot of really like dark comedy. It's it's great. Okay. I'm gonna highly it recommend it. Um let's see. As far as the other parts of the casting couch, you know, we talked about the other dude being in a lot of Adam Sandler movies. And you talked about his original caddy, bro, his later caddy, Alan Covert, the homeless guy. He's been in like all of his movies too. He was in Wedding Singer. Uh, he was one of his enemies in Waterboy, Little Dicky, in Mr. Deeds. He's the, you know, the journalist's friend. He works at the magazine with her. Anger Management, 51st Date, Longest Yard. So, Again, like just just goes to show this guy is like the old school Judd Apatow where I think he was the original one to take a bunch of bros and just put them in a room together and make a movie. You know, Judd Apatow is obviously the modern version of that with Paul Rudd, Seth Rogen, Jason Siegel and that group of guys. But just love seeing, you know, <laughs> all his guys pop up spot to spot in all the movies. Yeah, I mean, he does a great job of keeping that cast together. And you, you kind of know what it's going to be, and yet somehow you keep expecting, oh, they're going to go this way with this joke, and uh, they still manage to surprise you. Let me ask you this question for our casting couch. This is my one thing that I've been trying to figure out, and I don't know if there's a correct answer to this, but is there anybody else in Hollywood who can play these Adam Sandler roles, this quiet, reserved, almost awkward guy who just has these fits of rage and emotional outbursts. 
Oh, man, I don't know. I think the closest I would say from a comedy standpoint would be probably Ryan Reynolds. Ooh, but he just doesn't have he just doesn't have that that anger bit to him. So I I don't know. Maybe 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 if you combined Ryan Reynolds with Tom this version of Tom Cruise is just this insane rage psychopath on film sets and you put those two together, then maybe. What about like a, a young Will Ferrell? I feel like that's a dark horse kind of candidate. Jim Carrey, I thought of as well, but Carrey's too charismatic and likable. Yeah, I couldn't see Carrey. I don't, I don't know about Ferrell. I don't think he he has the requisite rage. I guess that's what makes it so hard is Sandler is able to make you laugh at the rage. Like he, he doesn't use comedy to make you laugh. He's able to use like the opposite spectrum of it. Yeah. He almost so, he even like harnesses your rage while you're watching him express that rage you know like you kind of you're rooting for him and your rage kind of is you know coming to the surface a little bit as well well i mean yeah it's like in happy when he's throwing the clubs cussing this and that you're laughing because it's like fuck i wish i could do that on the golf course and get away with it yeah or at my job Uh, yeah i don't know i i think he's i think he's the only one that could do it well, Adam Sandler, you've created this little like niche corner in Hollywood and you've dominated for many years. And now it looks like you found another niche corner in, you know, thrilling crime movies. So let's see what happens next. Last category here, bro. Quotes. I've got two, my two favorite quotes, both coming from Christopher McDonald. I'm going to give you one of them. Then I want to hear yours. The first okay. one is. Just stay out of my way or you'll pay. Listen to what I say. Want some hay? I just may. Lay down by the whip bay. Just, ran, just random, out of nowhere, <laughs> rhyming comedy Fair. thrown in. Super awkward. What do you say? Super well executed. What do you say? <laughs> it, that, that is a great one. Um, uh, for me, it's... It's got to be the price is wrong, bitch. <laughs> Probably the most classic in the entire movie. If there was one you could market this movie off of, it would have to be that one. I mean, who gets to supposedly not knock Bob Barker out and then get to use that? It's just, it's perfect. Yeah. He had to have at least a quarter chub when those words came out of his mouth. You're right. Um, <laughs> the last one for me. Again, Christopher McDonald talking about how much he hates golfing in this new landscape. I, just, I saw two big, fat, naked bikers in the woods of 17 having sex. How am I supposed to chip with that going on? Just his outrage at the situation, I think, sold very well. Uh, yeah, it did. It did because... <laughs> Yeah, that's that's what golf would do if it saw something like that. It would freak out. So I'm so glad I got to see you know that side of it. For the biggest thing that made me a skeptic of watching this movie was the golf angle of it. Just never been interested in golf movies in general. Even a classic 
with all-time actors in the legend of Bagger Vance, you know, Will Smith, Matt Damon, the the works. I was always iffy on, but I'm glad I got to see this dude. This was hilarious. Adam Sandler classic. It's in my tier two of Sandler movies. Tier one being probably Waterboy and Billy Madison. Um, but it's right at yeah. the top of tier two. Yeah, I'd sneak it in. It's tough for me to leave it out just because one, I mean, golf is now that I'm an old white man, it's, it's what I'm meant to do. Um, and so it's just classic. Like you, you get up on the tee, you rip a tee shot, you put the club between your legs and you start riding it around like a horse. You miss a putt, you yell at it. Why didn't it get in its home? You get inside somebody on your approach shot. You turn around and you say, somebody's closer. <laughs> like, it, it's just, <laughs> it's pretty much a, a part of weekly life for me now. Well, when I come down to uh, to Portland here in the fall, you'll have to take me out to a driving range. I'm not going to deal the frustrations of the green. I don't even know if I'll get anywhere close to the green if I play, but I'm down to hit some drivers with you. Hey, who knows? Next thing you could could be doing, you could be coached by Chubbs. There you go. Chubbs in his good hand. <laughs> All right, Brody. Well, this was a fun episode. You know, we're closing this out on a positive note, saying to the people, as we always say, bye. Bye. It's like 400 yards away. That's unbelievable. No, he's going from the links. Step right up. See if you can outdrive the amazing golf ball uh, whacker guy. To the links. Hey, where are you going with those clubs, punk? I'm your caddy. He's going to be on the tour. That's that's super. He's got the swing. He's got the drive. He shoots, he scores! He's got oh. the balls. Oh, God, I hurt a little, but I'm all right. Quite a large and economically diverse crowd here at the Invitational. I guess it's the new tour sensation, Happy Gilmore. Hey, if I saw myself in clothes like those, I'd have to kick my own ass. And while he's trying to keep Granny out of the rest home. I'm telling you, this place is perfect. You're going to make friends in no time. driving the game of golf why didn't you just go home that's your home are you too good for your home answer me straight into the ground damn you people this is golf i'm bob barker looks like you and i are going to be playing together today this guy sucks all right let's go universal pictures presents adam sandler the price is wrong bob as golf's missing link happy gilmore